Blog Talk Radio. Shut up. Zero one three zero. So, we may. Okay, and so, yeah. Okay, we're. Yeah, this is Donson File. Tom Donson, Coco Konski here. Um, welcome, Hello. ladies and gentlemen. Hello. Yes. Yeah, we're like I say on the Chairman of America's Pack and the. Project Director for America's Majority Foundation, and I have written eight books and working on a ninth. They're not yet bestsellers, but they all should be. And Coco. Hello. Well, hi there. My name is Coco. I'm a writer. I work in marketing. I live here in beautiful Burbank, California, and I co-host the show every Tuesday and I actually totally forgot today was Tuesday I thought today was Monday um, <laughs> because I had celebrated Valentine's Day Sunday so I didn't have the kid with me on Sunday so my whole week has been completely screwed <laughs> because of Valentine's Day speaking of which how was your Valentine's Day Tom Actually, it was very relaxing. Uh, you know, one has to understand that we, what we did is we picked up Chinese because uh, we were ah. trying to minimize it. See, the problem was we were having problems with deliveries because it's like, uh, you know, it was like minus 10 degrees. So I shipped oh out gosh. to the Chinese. I shipped out to Chinese and basically got a whole bunch of Chinese, enough for two or three meals. And then we went home and we well, just ate Chinese. Well, that's how you do it. That's how we do it. Yeah. yeah, we went home, you know, and basically got, you know, put our, like I say, blankets over us and then had Chinese. <laughs> oh, nice. I uh, I had a really awesome um, Valentine's Day. Uh, obviously, we're not going out to eat. Um, we technically could have because um, I did feel comfortable enough. We we ordered takeout from Morden's, Morden's Steakhouse. Um, and I mm. liked the signs that they had as we walked in to pick up our food that they were only allowing outdoor dining if you were base, basically the only people you were allowed to outdoor dine with, you had to live with. They weren't allowing different people from different houses to dine in. So I actually liked that. <laughs> I felt very like, I was like, damn, I wish we could have, we could have actually done that. Um, so, and the minute you walk into the parking lot, I, I, I want this sign. They had a sign that said, are you coughing? Do you have a fever? Um, 
do you are you sneezing? If so, please stay home. <laughs> so um, yeah. uh, we could have dined. We could have dined. I mean, I feel for like over two hundred dollars worth of food um, for two people. You know, we we we, we should have dined out um, because I love Morton's. Morton's is an experience, um, yeah. and the food was awesome. The, their food is like I don't know if you've been to Morton's, Tom. You probably have. It's like a very Midwest thing. Apparently, yes, it is. I, I've been, um, yes, I've been there. It's yeah, very good. I didn't know it was a Midwest thing. Apparently, it is. Um, yeah. And uh, no, it was it was pretty awesome though. Like we ended up, it was so sad. We ended up ordering Morton's, and then like we just started watching like Hotel Impossible on uh, on Discovery Plus. So that was our Valentine's Day. <laughs> Um, hmm. that's, that's what we, and, and we started watching the documentary Hotel Cecil. Um, I don't know if you've heard about that. Okay. Um, oh my God, where have you been? <laughs> yeah. So Hotel Cecil is a hotel, was a hotel in downtown Los Angeles. Um, it had, it's over 700 rooms and it is the most infamous hotel, um, really in the world. I'd be bold enough to say, um, you've heard of Richard Mar- Mar- Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He mm-hmm. stayed there when he did his killings. That's the place he stayed at. Um, as well as many other famous uh, serial killers have stayed there. Um, well, this famous hotel was the hotel where the woman was found in the water tank. Yeah. If you weren't mm. aware of that situation. Where she went missing, she went missing. Her name was Elise Lamb. She had met, she had went missing, and for 19 days, they they couldn't find her. All they had was this this videotape of her in this elevator, acting very very strange, as if she was talking to someone, but no one was there. And it's a very interesting series because. This water tank didn't have a latch. Yeah. So yeah. the question is, how did she, you know, a young woman, 21 years old, wind up naked inside a water tank? And remember, she was in that tank for 19 days. People were drinking that water. People were bathing in that water. Yeah. You know, um, it was it was such a it was such a big case when it hit Los Angeles because, you know, this was a tourist from um, Canada. You know, she was a she was a student. She wanted to go on vacation, so she wanted to stay at the Cecil Hotel. And if you know that area, it's the area of Skid Row. It is not a nice area. Many people get abducted in that area, and it, it it's a really interesting documentary. It's very spooky. It actually kind of terrified me. I don't get terrified easily, but knowing that um, I've been I've been to that hotel, and um, it's yeah. a beautiful hotel, Tom. It's it's it, it it had been built in 1919. It's a very Art Deco hotel, but there have been about 24 deaths. Um, you know, uh, a man in 1920 had killed himself with a razor slash his throat. There was a woman who um, apparently gave birth in one of the bathrooms, didn't want to wake up her sleeping husband. So she threw the baby outside the window. 
There was another mm. woman um, in 1964 who was raped and murdered in one of in one of the the um, hotel rooms. And what's really interesting, I'm kind of going on a rant here because I want to talk. This is something I really want to talk about um, that I know a lot of people find interesting. What was yeah, really hold interesting on that. about yeah, this? Yeah, hold, yeah. Yeah, hold on that thought. We're going to continue here at the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Um. Go, Caleb! Come on, hit a homer, Jesse! Go, guys! Hey, did you guys know that kids who play sports earn more money when they grow up? <laughs> of course. I I knew that. Hey, did you guys know that kids who read books have a bigger vocabulary? Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wow, Jinx. <laughs> Did you guys know that friendly children have more friends? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's true. I knew that. Did you guys know that winter babies are better at music? Everyone knows that. Oh, yeah? yeah. Pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. obvious. Oh, hey, guys. Did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? Huh. I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure I knew that. I'm pretty sure you didn't. Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back here on the Donaldson Files. Uh, call in 646-929-0130. If you got some, a story about surviving this, this uh, polar vortex, and basically it's gripped about a good portion of the country, uh, feel free to call uh, 646-929-0130. We want to hear your stories. If you have any, you know, we want to hear your stories. All right. Okay, go ahead and continue with the story you had, Coco. Right. So what we're talking right now is Hotel Cecil. Um, now, this is hotel that I've personally been into. I I have toured this place. This place is not open right now, but what made this hotel so interesting, Tom, is that it had such a horrible reputation that they had literally changed the name of the hotel. They had changed the name of the hotel to try to like basically say, hey, we're not really Hotel Cecil anymore, even though we are. And how they managed to do this was Here's the thing. Hotel Cecil was actually used um, for, like, very, very low-income residential people, like in Skid Row, who needed a month-long place to stay. And obviously that wasn't, like, really, you know, profitable. So what they did was back in, I believe it was, like, 2007. Yeah, around 2007, what they did was they used half of the hotel – would be the Hotel Cecil, and the other half was Stay on Main. They used the name Stay on Main. Um, And so it was basically, it was the same hotel. And the problem you would have is you would have, you know, people like heroin addicts, you would have crack addicts, Mm -hmm. you would have, you know, (laughs) people who were heavy, heavily into drugs. And then you would have these tourists, and, you know, come from out of state, you know, staying in the same location. And the one thing that connected to them was the elevator. They always shared the elevator. And that was one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this series um, with Elisa Lamb 
And it, it's just, it's just yeah. a fascinating series, Tom. It, it's scary. It's, it's, yeah. it's actually really frightening. Because if you think about it, you know, I believe what the video that the police produced and showed was totally altered. You know, I have the, my boyfriend is an editor. He's a film editor, Tom. He does it for a living. And he, 100% within like a couple of seconds, was like, this is completely altered video. There's no timestamp on the video. And when there is a timestamp, it's completely covered. Within a couple seconds, you see an elevator go from one, one like, like closed to a full on you know, separated, and it doesn't, it, it would not take, it doesn't go that fast for an elevator to close, it just, that doesn't happen, so, I mean, there's just, it's just such inconsistencies with that video, and it's just like, there's so many conspiracies, and if you're really interested in this type of mysteries, I, I 100% recommend it, it's like, again, like I said, it's, it's, <laughs> Uh, it's just, it's incredible. Like I said, there have been over 16 murders in that hotel um, publicized, at least that that we know about. Um, I've said Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, he would, um, interesting, this is actually a really quick, interesting fact. When he was done murdering his victims, this is, this is how shady this hotel is, Tom. This is how shady it was. He would go to the alley strip out his clothes because he was covered in blood and walk naked through the lobby and no one would question a thing. <laughs> wow. That is the wow. type of hotel this place was. Wow. And a lot of other known murderers uh, hung out there because they knew of the reputation. They knew they never would get caught. Hmm. So, um, so where this that's the type of again? hotel where it is. Was, yeah, where is this located again? This is in downtown Los Angeles, and interesting enough, Tom, I almost lived in an apartment three doors down from that place. Yeah. So, if I had not met my yeah. current boyfriend, um, I would literally be living about two blocks away from the Cecil Hotel. So, hmm. fun fact. Fun fact. Yeah. Well, let me ask you. Let me. Uh, so let me let me kind of get this straight here. Uh huh. So what? So, this basically is kind of like in Skid Row. It is Skid Row. Uh, it's Skid Row. It is Skid Row. Um, so, basically, this is a place where criminals hang out. Well, it's not just criminals. I mean, I wouldn't be fair to call them, like, criminals per se. I mean, it's just, like, okay, this is how it is. You know, in Los Angeles, in downtown L.A., um, there's a place called Skid Row. And Skid Row, it's there's, like, three or four homeless shelters um, that are, and this was done on purpose, by the way, this was done on purpose. So, you know, the homeless would just be in one spot. So they would be away from society. This is how it was meant to be. And doing that, you know, let's say you're in prison or you're in a psych ward or, you know, in, in a mental facility or whatever it is. The very first thing they do when you are released in Los Angeles is they drop you off at Skid Row and they say goodbye. That is what they do. Yeah. So you are on your own. And that's why there's so many people in Skid Row. They're over like 
and I'm not exaggerating in the numbers. I'm really not. This is just a fact. There are about 100,000 homeless people at Skid Row. Yeah. Easily, easily. Hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, there's no place to live, and there's low, low, low very, very, very low, cheap. Like, you could get a room at the, yeah. the Cecil for, I believe it was, like, $30 a night. And that mm. was, like, 2010. Yeah. So, you know. Well, yeah, yeah, okay. So, so, so this is where you live, huh? It, no, I did not live it, there. So, um, I was looking at an apartment. No, no, but you said you were – you lived about like two or three blocks away. Well, I was gonna move about two, three blocks away to this place um, called oh, the PE Loft, the Pacific yeah. Electric Loft. Um, the interesting about downtown LA is that it's very, it's a very haunted area. Um, the Pacific, the Pacific Electric Loft. Um, they we used to have in downtown Los Angeles. There used to be the Pacific Electric Railroad, um, the railroad company. And so way after, you know, when we started having cars and all that, um, they got turned into lofts. And um, an interesting fact about that place is that that area um, has been really known to be be haunted because Mm -hmm. um, dogs, um, people who have owned dogs, the dogs have been known to jump out of the windows, you know. Um, And so... I was always really interested in the Cecil Hotel, mainly because I'm obsessed with Art Deco. And I said, like yeah. I said, this this place was built in 1919 for about a million dollars. That was a lot yeah. of money back then, Tom. Yeah. Wasn't was it not? Yeah, yeah it <laughs> that would was be, a lot yeah, of money back in 1919. And um. Yeah. Over 300 rooms, I believe. I, I said 700, but I, I was thinking of something else. But it was over 300 rooms. It is one of the biggest, if not the biggest building in downtown L.A. And it is closed yeah. down right now. Um, that's why the documentary came out. Um, actually, two documentaries have come out from it. Um, and, you know, it's 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 really creepy. Charles, if you've ever been inside, it's you know, and the thing that really creeped me out really quick was the fact that for 19 days, this woman was inside the water cooler, the water cooler where people would bathe, drink water. And they had interviewed this British couple who, who isn't, who they are in the documentary. And they noticed like there was just like this water just had like this really weird taste. And they just like, they just thought like, you know, it had like a really just, just a weird, disgustingly sweet taste, you know? And then it wasn't until like, they realized like that a woman has been, had been found in the water cooler for 19 days that they were tasting basically the body of a woman. And like the, the girl, yeah, that's what it was. And till this day, like she's traumatized, and my whole my the entire time, people are making fun of it. But I'm like, I would be severely traumatized. I would, I honestly, I don't think I would be able to drink water if if I knew that happened to well, me. Well, let me put it this way: I I would have a hard time drinking water there. <laughs> yeah. So and, I mean, did it, I not, mean, did it and, not taste any? Was there any kind of? And the, taste the very the very odd part, by the way, the very odd part was that there was no latch. So if there's no latch in the water cooler, how did she get in? And second of all, how did the latch close? 
how did the water cooler close after she got in? That's the mystery. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think did. she was murdered. I think she was murdered. I think there was a cover-up with LAPD because of the altered video. I think there's yeah. there's too much too much coincidences going on. I think, you know, it's a very corrupt, LAPD is very corrupt. And I, it would not shock me if some one of them was involved in it. Because I, I don't buy that, you know, a woman, you know, whether she's bipolar or not, you know, let's say she commits suicide, okay. But how do you, first of all, unlatch a, a water a water yeah. main, a water, and and then on top of that, if you're already dead in the water, how do you, how, how does that come back on? How does that close? I, uh, that's a good question. That is a good question. You know, how does yeah. that close without anybody seeing, you know? So, I mean, and the interesting part is they have, they have a, a manager from the hotel during that time period. And she's just giving all these BS answers, like, well, you know, that wasn't our responsibility. And it's the whole time I'm thinking, um, well, yeah, it kind of is. And saying how they didn't alter any video and what they gave them. But, you know, the video is completely – you guys can watch it online. Like, literally, it's like – it's a three-minute video of her. And you see either some – like, there's a foot or there's someone there – you know, she looks like she's talking to someone. And then she does these weird movements, almost like she's possessed. Um, but, you know, I, uh, I I don't have an explanation. I do not have an explanation to what happened to her. And it's one of the biggest mysteries. But I definitely do believe that videotape is botched because there are too many seconds missing in that video yeah. for it to be real. Okay. Well, that's great. What a great story. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> to, you, know, you find all these great stories. Uh, you you wanted a good gonna, story. I did. I wanted a good story, and you gave it. I'm gonna, one quick Thank one you. before we get to our next break, and then we're going to talk about Texas, uh, the power right. outages. Um, but on Morton, you, you brought up Morton Steakhouse. And, I did. Yes. And here's the thing. You know, my daughter and I, every Thanksgiving, because she used to work at 9-11. Now she works at Skyscape, right. which is the museum for spice. And and so we would literally on Thanksgiving, because she always worked Thanksgiving. Or, you know, right. on Thanksgiving Day she worked. And so we basically would go to Morton Steakhouse for our Thanksgiving Oh, it's so day. great, isn't it? It is great. I mean, the steak it's melts fantastic. in Mouth. It melts in your mouth, and it. It really does. It, and so, it does. So, but I'm. But a, like, do you know, do you know how sad I felt that we had to get takeout from Wardens and not sit down and eat it. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least you got to eat it. So. Well, well here we are at the yeah, yeah. Well, hold on that thought. We're gonna go to, to Texas. You're gonna talk about some of your friends talking tell, talking to you. Yeah. And we're gonna go because there are some very interesting lessons here to be learned from this. Uh, 
So this is Tom Donaldson, Coco Koska here on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, Sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. Yeah, this is a Donaldson Files once again. Uh, uh, back here. And, uh, by the way, we do have a website, the Bachelor News Radio Network.com. If you go on the network, you can go to the Donaldson Files and you can get some of our latest shows. Uh, for example, uh, last week, uh, the February 9th show. With Coco, and then the Wednesday show with Jason Hart. So, uh, Justin Hart, pardon me, Justin Hart. So, and you can listen to him as much as you want, and obviously this show will be on as well here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. All right, go ahead and tell me about the. You, you had some friends, you talked to some friends in Texas, so once you guys have- kind of fill us in. So I, I have a lot of friends in Texas. I have one of my really good friends, Rocky. He lives in Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, and joke around about our weather. You know, I always bitch at it being 63 degrees. And he'll make fun of me because that's the relationship we have. Um, but, you know, the last couple of days, like, I was actually pretty worried about him. Because I realized, like, you know, you guys are going to be having some pretty hardcore weather. And, um, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't good at all. You know, the last two days he's hasn't, I think it was less like three days. He hasn't had any power his house right now. He, so obviously he has no heat, you know, he hasn't been able to bathe. Um, his current house temperature right now is 48 degrees and he has animals. So obviously we're worried about that. Um, he doesn't have power, um, although a couple doors down, his neighbors have power, and one of the reasons he believes that they have power is because they're on a hospital grid, which means that they, the, their, their power grid is basically the same as, um, their local hospital, which he does not have that. Um, again, I can't prove that. That is just a theory that people have been coming Mm -hmm. up with. Um, so one of his neighbors basically picked him up today to help basically charge his phone because without it, you know, he's basically screwed completely. Um, it's just, it's just not a good situation. You know, he has, he doesn't have like really water, like he has Gatorade for, you know, a couple, (coughs) excuse me, um, days. Um, obviously there's no delivery, no one's delivering. Um, it, it, it's just a, it's a huge mess. It's a huge mess. Mm. And the same thing in Austin. I mean, I have friends in Austin. I have friends all over Texas. So yeah. everyone is basically in the same boat right now. Yeah. Well, here's the interesting thing, because there's a lot of aspects of this story that I think is worth talking about, because first of all, number one, Southerners in snow, are two things that don't go together very well. Uh, 
if anybody's ever lived in the South and ever seen snow, the Southerners dealing with a snowstorm. <clears throat> it's it is what the best I can say is, you know, you, you don't want to be anywhere near a Southerner in a car in a snowstorm. They panic. I mean, I mean, everything shuts down. And you have to imagine because basically, uh, yeah. But basically, like, here's the thing: it's yeah, like there's a lot yeah. of people suffering right now. You know, yeah. this is not just a little cold. This is brutal, cold, extreme yeah, weather, and it's there's a there's a blackout right now. You know, it's oh yeah, it's, I know. It's nobody exactly really. Me. No, hold on. No yeah. one can escape this, you know, and I really wish we would hold politicians to account um, right now, you know, when they're – it's not – now is not the time to score political points, you know. <laughs> you know, I wish the people of Texas well, and, you know, I think people should help them when you can. Yeah. Well, here's the answer, because I'm going to give you a story. This is a story uh, – there are two stories here that are worth it first. This came from, let me see, uh, ABC, I think it's in uh, Fort Worth, uh, Dallas, I'm not sure where. Uh, but they talk about the fact that, I mean, here's the thing. You know, like I say, I mean, one of the aspects is properly not winterizing the equipment. And the other aspect is that uh, the wind turbines were frozen. About twenty and basically about twenty percent of the energy, the electricity is coming from wind windmills, and and there and, and so basically right off the bat, twenty percent are gone, and I mean they're frozen, they're frozen, uh, and so obviously, the, to me the question would be is that, you know, what because it's not like this has happened. This has happened before, August of two thousand eleven, six months. After an ice storm crippled the state, uh, you know, there was a report saying, Here, here's what we need to be doing. So it's not like they were not warned in the past. Uh, True. Not warned in the past. And so, and so there's a combination of two factors here. Number one, it's an unusual event that they didn't prepare for. Because one thing about Texas, when you look at hurricanes, you know, they do a great job of preparing for hurricanes. But ice storms, and this is not an ice storm. This is a polar vortex. I mean, there, you know, there's portions of Texas that are about as cold, colder than it is in Alaska. And for your friend, you know, this is something, he, you know, they're not used to. And, you know, even to those of us who get used to this stuff, you don't get used to it. So right. you, you know, it'd be interesting to see because obviously, if they've had these issues before, you know the question is, you know, you know why didn't they do anything about it? Maybe that's another, uh, you know, who's responsible? And the other aspect is is the other aspect too is that is again, this is the risk when you have more and more. Dependence on wind, you know, turbines. Because the same thing happened in Minnesota in 2019. These mm-hmm. things freeze at night. And the issue comes into play because what they have is they have a backup system, namely 
whatever the coal or natural gas plant is nearby, they have to basically red that thing back up to make up any difference when the wind doesn't blow. And certainly when you have something like this, where you literally are losing 20% of your energy sources, you have to basically depend on other energy sources. And so this, you know, if, and this is going to be an issue down the road because I, well, we have the same thing. I've, you know, I've been through, you know, power shortage for a period of time in the winter. And like your friend, I mean, we got into about, I think 50 degrees is what I remember the lowest we got. Uh, but, I mean, you're walking around, you know, with clothes, you're sleeping with clothes. And here's the other thing, you know, we have a gas fireplace. So we can't even turn on the fireplace. Because it's you know, elect, you right. know, because it's elect, so we can't even get the fireplace going for any extra warmth. So, and you're absolutely correct. This is serious because a little known story: more people die in cold weather than they die in hot weather. You know, there've been statistical analysis done on that, and when you get to this extreme cold, it is you're going to see. People die from exposure, and it doesn't take a oh, whole yeah. lot. I mean, hypothermia. I mean, just I mean, and think of like all the animals outside. Like right now, a friend of mine has an outdoor cat that can't go inside. So like, I mean, he's definitely afraid of what's going to happen to it. Yeah. Well, why can't he come inside? Um, because the cat doesn't want to come inside. It's afraid of human interaction. Oh, so it's a feral cat. Yeah. That he feeds every oh, I see. now and then. Yeah. Oh, okay, it's just that, yeah. you know, he yeah, would if he could. It is. Yeah. Well, I guess it's my daughter's first cat was feral. Right. Yeah. And she coaxed him in. And now he's like, he's been with the, now it's like, uh, he's like, God, he'll be 13 this year. Oh, uh, wow. Cooper. Yeah, 13 years. So it took her a while to get her in, to get him in. But after a while, she did. But, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're saying. You're absolutely correct. But just the interesting thing is this. We, you know, I have a birder feeder outside. And occasionally I'll go out now. You know, the problem with the birder feed is that you have to basically trump through two feet of snow to get to it mm-hmm. <laughs> at this point. And with low zero weather, I'm not exactly enthusiastic about filling a bird feeder and going through two feet of snow. But about, but I got pictures where a, I mean, I guess it was like three days ago, this squirrel, you know, basically was just going to town on the bird feeder, you know, upside down. I mean, I got some great pictures. I, had a, I think I may put them back on the timeline of the uh, timeline of the Twitter, and I'll put it on the website, <laughs> donaldsontfiles.com, because it's a, I mean, it's a great picture. Uh, of the squirrel just eating. And then I've got pictures of birds flying all over the place. But, uh, yeah. Well, you know, again, it's a good question. You know, what do, you know, politicians uh, need to be held? Because basically, you know, these are, I mean, utilities tend to be regulated by the government. They tend to be fairly heavily regulated. So you would think. This is one thing they'd be looking at. And if you had this in the past, uh, yeah, you would think 
you know, you'd be prepared. But Well, yeah, and I, I think, like, a lot of people don't self-prepare. Like, I knew a lot of people, like, I had a friend of mine on the phone today. He's like, well, we didn't prepare for this. And I was like, I live in Los Angeles, and I'm prepared for this. Like, I have, in, literally, Tom, in my pantry, I have an earthquake kit. I have a hurricane kit. kit I have, I have, um, what are those, those, those foods for, you know, in case, like, the power goes out for, like, two weeks, um, you know, I have, I have a survival kit, I, I'm always prepared, always, I even, this, you're going to laugh at me right now, but I have a system, it's like, it's like a little floaty thing, and what it does is, so let's say, you know, there's no more drinkable water, right? Um, you mm-hmm. put the, the tube in the bathtub and you fill it up. And what it does is that will turn bath water into drinkable filtered water. I have everything known to mankind to survive because, um, you know, when COVID started and when their fires and the earthquakes had started happening, um, we, we got everything to be prepared. Yeah. So I don't think there's an excuse hmm. not to be prepared. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean the, yeah. Well, I say here's the thing. The average person in Texas is not. This is one of those very rare events that happens in the in Texas. Then uh, I I'm not gonna, you know, it's one of those things where I I can understand why people would not be totally prepared because it's a rarity that you're going to get sub-zero weather for God, you know, a period of year, period of time with snow and ice to go on top of it. Uh, you know, you know, that, so there's no doubt that this is one of those events that I'm not, you know, it's one of those things where you really can't prepare. Uh, no, I get uh, it, maybe, but you still always you still always have an emergency. Yeah. You know, you always have an emergency yeah. kit. You always have make yeah. sure you have water. You always make sure you have perishable, you know, food that you have with you. I mean, yeah. it's kind of a no brainer. Like even if like you you prepare, you know, expect the worst, prepare for the best, you know, type of situation. So I mean, I don't know. I've always prepared. So and I don't yeah. live in Texas. I live in LA. Yeah. Um, well, here's, yeah, well, here's the thing. But here's the thing with you, and here's the say, for example, if I lived in Houston, you probably should be because Houston is used to getting hurricanes throughout the year. Right. They're used to getting, so they ought to have some preparation, and you get earthquakes. Yeah. And so, I mean, it makes sense that we get tornadoes, <laughs> and, you know, in Iowa. Plus, uh, yeah, I mean, but the also, thing is, it's just, it's, get, it's just like, you know, I mean, like I said, with the fires that we've had and with the earthquakes and with everything else, like, I I have always been, like, I, I literally can walk into my pantry right now, and I have four large buckets. Um, we have a prepper in the family. I have I have a prepper yeah. in the family who sent us um, end of the world, you know, things were to happen yeah. and, like, the world would end how will we survive on food? Like we have that. Um, yeah. Well, hold on to that thought. Yeah, hold on. Thought. Be a... Yeah, yeah. Hold on. Thought. This is Tom Donaldson here with the Donaldson Pile with Coco Kowalski. Uh We're still working on tomorrow's show. 
I'm waiting for some guests to come in, so that should be. But we should have another Dynamite show tomorrow here on the Donaldson Files and the Bachelor News Radio Network. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Yes, don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Donaldson Files here in the Bachelor News right now. We'll get your flu shots. Uh, tomorrow I'll be getting my COVID first dose of my COVID shot tomorrow because I I'm am 67 so jealous. Years. I'm 67 years old and I am. And I'm jealous. <laughs> I'm so yeah. jealous right now. You have no idea. Because I'll, I'll tell you something. Yeah. Um, I, I, once I get my vaccine, Tom, and I, I should be eligible um, pretty soon because of my asthma. Um, well, when that time comes, uh, Steve and I have planned to take a two-week vacation. Um, we will be going to Tulum, Mexico for two weeks um, where I will have no contact with anybody. Yeah. Because so, I I need a vacation. Yeah. Badly. Right. I, yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I, I'm going to like say uh, – there were a lot of things when it comes to COVID, I've been right on target with some numbers. And one thing that I was always on target with, I have to admit, I do not like Andrew Cuomo. He's one of those politicians. There are a lot of politicians out there that I can at least tolerate or at least uh, give the benefit of the doubt. But, uh, but uh, here's what this guy did. And, I, and you can see and to me, this these are unforgivable sins. Is number one, he set a policy of putting COVID patients in nursing homes. I mean, this was done, you know, for nursing homes. The second thing that he did is that he changed the criteria of what a nursing home death was, so that they could underestimate. So he can hide the fact that he, how many people he truly killed with this policy. I mean, how many people died as a result of this policy. And number three, he covered all of this up. And, he, and his own people have admitted that they covered up a lot of this data when the Justice Department came sniffing around. I mean, think about it. They all but admitted we lied to the Justice Department. <laughs> you lied to your legislature. And and, 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 again, this is one of those stories – I have to be very blunt because this is one of those stories that – that, uh, you know, again, it's you – know, because there are certain things, certain politicians – and like I say, you know, you know, I give a lot of politicians a break during the COVID deal. Uh, there, are few, there are politicians who did better on some areas than at others. Uh, your governor of California, you know, basically, if you look at the death per capita, he's got one of the lowest death per capita uh, per million. So, 
it's other, it's going to be interesting because, quite frankly, he's being now called out, and you know, Coburn is being uh, now called out on, yeah, you know, and it's just been called out by his own party. And this is going to be the interesting aspect of the political side of the equation here, because, uh, you know, by the way, uh, if you're trying to figure out where Coco Konski is, Coco just had a power outage with her phone. She's trying to call back in, so be patient. Uh, but the point I'm going to make here is this. He lied in so many ways, and the worst part about it is he actually wrote a book on how, what a great job he did while doing this. He's got one of the highest, he's got one of the highest death totals in the United States on a per capita basis. He's up there probably at the highest, the second highest. And it's going to be interesting because it's the attorney general's report that came out that basically said that the number of people who died was double the numbers, double the numbers that they had. And I think it's going to be in, and I, I just got a feeling that Como's political career is going to take a hit. And I and I would not be surprised if his attorney general runs against him in the primary next year. It would be fascinating. Uh, like I say, we're still waiting to get a Coco back, but I am going to L.A., I, I'm going to put you on the line because we were talking about Southerners driving in bad weather, snowy weather. So what's the weather like in North Carolina? I'm sorry, uh, Tom. You, you asked me what was the question? Yeah. yeah. The question I was asking you is what's the weather like right now in North Carolina? Are you guys getting hit with some of the stuff that I know Tennessee's gotten hit with, Texas got hit with, uh, you know, are you guys getting hit with any of this? Uh, no, we're not, we're not getting Texas um, weather. We, we've had some power outages, but again, Tom, you know, as far as the cold, you know where I'm from, so it's it's not really yeah. cold here. But but we we do have. I, I, I guess we've had some power out, outages in some places. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're you're the exception. You're Connecticut, so you're. Yeah, you, know, you 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 were training. I mean, you've got some of that cold blood in you. Like I, you know, it's like my daughter. Yeah, you know, when she moved to New York, she said, you know, on the average, New York temperature winters are not as harsh. And and she kind of laughed at these New Yorkers at 40 degrees. They got her their coat, and she's got her light jacket on. <laughs> but I, I tell you, the one thing I want to kind of, you know you know ask you about is. I've been in North Carolina when you've had snowstorms, and 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 I can tell you, to watch a southerner drive in a snowstorm is a rather a panic in itself. You know, you 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 guys get an inch of snow and everything shuts down. I mean that. I mean right. I remember years years ago when I was in North Carolina during a snowstorm and it was like one inch. It was not one inch. You know, for us and I was what's one inch, right? <laughs> but right, literally, right. but literally, you, Durham, the Chapel Hill area, research climate, it shut down. People literally could not would not go into work. Yeah, I mean, uh, people here are very uh, conscious of the weather. Um, 
and I think Tom is really uh, surprising because there are a lot of people from the north like me, and they're still in the state are not ready for snow and cold. And I don't get it. Yeah. Like, it's a lot of transient people here that come here from, you know, even Iowa, where you're at, you know, Minnesota, where yeah. they come from these different places, but Carolina is still not ready to handle these difficulties. I mean, I, I tell my kids all the time, if they ever grew up in Connecticut, you know, they would have days off like I did. I mean, or, or no days off, at, at, you know, like I did. When it snowed, we get, you know, a foot of snow and we two feet of snow or a foot, and we would go to school. If it was cold, we still had to go to school. Here, oh, yeah. good luck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the same thing here. I mean, the same thing in Iowa. I mean, they, you know, I mean, we got minus zero degrees, and we still have the schools open. Right. No, thank you. Know, you. Yeah. So it's like well, I just nuts. got a power outage. Well, yeah. co- you know, Coco might have the power outage, and I hope you don't, Coco. But um, <laughs> the warm weather—you—you've been to Florida and California. I mean, oh yeah, you not experienced any real cold at all. I mean, oh no, I thank mean, God I didn't. No, but I, it, I have it. I I have experienced like crazy heat waves. So. Yeah. I don't know which I'd rather take. You know, I could always bundle under covers, but I can never get enough uh, air conditioning. Yeah. All right. I'm going to say, I'm going to change something here because I'm going to tell you, here's something, and I'm going to get, no, I know, Coker, you're going to have this. Yeah. Here's what you my, do my, not do. My entire block is out right now, guys. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Wow. But yeah, but here's what you do not do, Florida man. And, and of course, it's a Florida story. Florida man of proposes using rings stolen oh. from another lover. Detectives saw the victim said the victim saw her boyfriend's new fiance wearing a wedding band and an engagement ring identical to what she had from their previous marriage. Oh my God! Yes, killed the man. Yes, and here's the uh, and here's the thing: this woman went checked her jewelry box and found that these rings that she had were missing, including the diamond ring that belonged to her grandmother. So this guy is using a ring. You know, and, and here's the value: sixty-three hundred dollars worth. That's terribly uh, bad. Yeah. So I, this is one of those, do not do. Well, yeah. yeah I, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I would assume do not do. I mean, hello, yeah. Tom. <laughs> I would hope you wouldn't do. You know. Well, the interesting thing about the story is that is that the woman reached out to the other fiance, who was probably equally startled to find out that her new mm-hmm. boyfriend, or 
was in fact passing on stolen material, <laughs> stolen jewelry. Oh so my she God. did return some of those. And obviously, uh, uh, this relationship, uh, this is a relationship, uh, will not. <laughs> well, I I sure as hell hope it would not, Tom. That's uh, yeah, yeah. Please no. Yeah. That's Wait, yeah, this is. I mean, it, it's not I mean, shocking. Yeah. It's not shocking, to be honest. It's not shocking to me. But yeah, that's pretty insane. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I mean, I'm reading this story. Like I said, I'm reading this story, and I'm like, I cannot believe I'm reading what I'm reading. You know, it's just one of those things you look and just say to yourself, "Are you kidding me?" Right. But. And this is one of the stories I wish we had for Valentine's Day, because this has been one of those. <laughs> here's what you do. Here's what you do not do on Valentine's Day: steal your ex-wife's jewelry, and then give it to your new fiance. Now, uh, we got a few minutes here left, but here's uh, one last story, uh, and then uh, Coco is going to talk very briefly about her p- proposed trip. To Bali one more time. Okay, group of. Oh, not Bali. I changed it. <laughs> oh. Right, group of archaeologists have made quite the discovery. A large ancient Egyptian brewery that produced 6,000 gallons of beer when it was up and running 5,000 years ago. This brewery was covered in South Egypt, and it's the oldest high-production brewery in the world that they found. I mean, this is like the – and the, and his, the facility had late eight large areas for beer production, each of them containing like 40 clay pots arranged in two rows. They used a mixture of grain and water, the whole ball of wax, and and – and so this is a so I guess you could say uh, the Egypt you know that the Egyptians knew how to make beer. I mean, but this is I mean, I'm, I'm reading this story. I'm like, wow, you know, five thousand years ago, and boy, look at this. I mean, it's like this is a beer factory. Right. I was I was impressed. I was impressed. So that's pretty cool, actually. So, so, well, um, if you guys want me to talk real quick, um, yeah, go ahead. We got, uh, so we have about I, three minutes. All right, I can do go three ahead. minutes, hopefully. Um, so I, I have been quarantining, it's been exactly a one year since I was out anywhere, literally out to a restaurant, out anywhere. <laughs> it's been a year, yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, um, my my boyfriend's movie's up uh, end of July. Hopefully we'll be getting our vaccines by then. We were thinking, you know, hey, you know, we need to go somewhere. So originally the plan was Bali because it's super cheap. Um, it's so cheap, Tom. You can get a two-hour massage at an actual resort spa for like $13. But mm. But we realized – do we want to be on a 24-hour flight? The flights are 24 hours, literally. 
Um, yeah. And so we're like, no, we do not want that. <laughs> not right now. So we will be going to Tulum, Mexico, where the Mayan ruins are. Um, I'm very excited. That will be happening most likely September. Um, it all depends on what COVID is like, of course. We'll still be wearing our masks. At least I plan to. Um, but, yeah, I just thought I need 12 days of just relaxation cocktails and just no communication with anybody. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I looked at Tulum. It's beautiful. I don't know if you, any of you guys have been to Mexico, but um, I didn't want to do anything touristy. I didn't want to do the whole MTV Spring Bake um, BS. And Tulum is a gorgeous, gorgeous area. Um, that is, it's right where the Aztec uh, Mayan ruins are. So um, yeah. if you love history, <laughs> which I do, and you love, they have everything from um, jungles to, you know, the beaches where you can be on a jungle tour one day and go scuba diving the next day. You know, um, it's just, it's really fabulous. So yeah. we have decided to splurge on that. And I was like, I found it so cheap right now. I mean, that's one of the things I, I realized. Yeah. I was like, wow, the travel industry it yeah. is cheap. It um, is. Well, I you know, you, yeah. I, yeah, if I say why, I would just say, uh, yeah, we'll have to cut you off because we're at that at the end of the show. This is the Donaldson Files with Coco, Coco Konski. But, you know, next week maybe Coco will talk more about her trip to Mexico, mainly because my daughter – also has studied Mayan languages. That's what her PhD was in. So, yes, yeah, so we need to discuss this further here on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Hey, we want to welcome everyone to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network, where hopefully everyone is is having a a safe uh, and warm uh, afternoon, uh, because with all of the weather that we have going on, everybody has uh, temperatures that are below freezing and snow, so hopefully everybody uh, is somewhere uh, safe and warm, and you're listening to one of the hottest podcast shows uh, around and especially on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, We're excited that everybody is able to join us. We want to remind all of the listeners that the calling number to the show is uh, 
That's 646-929-0130. And you can follow you and the law on our social media platform. You can follow us on Facebook at you and the law one. Uh, That's you and the law one. You can follow us on Instagram at you underscore and the law. And you can follow us on Twitter at you and the law one. So we um, have a, a great show planned for our listeners. Uh, we've got a, a very special guest who is uh, going to be joining us uh, uh, today on our uh, edition of uh, Black History Month on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, she is a, um, a phenomenal woman, uh, w- what we will call her, uh, in the law enforcement industry, and she is uh, Chief Vera of Upper with the uh, Houston Metro Transit Police Department. And we're going to be talking about African-American women in leadership roles in law enforcement. And uh, so uh, just looking forward to having her on the show, talking with us and talking with you all about some of the things that, some of the barriers that African-American women face in law enforcement uh, and what kind of challenges those are uh, faced with in career advancement. So uh, it's a real important topic that we're having this month, uh, especially during Black History Month, as we recognize uh, people who have came before us and people who are, who are in the industry now who are making some, uh, some really good positive things going on in their community. Uh, my co-host is going to be joining us uh, pretty shortly, uh, Chief uh, Swag, as, as everybody knows him. He's going to be joining us here Pretty shortly, he uh, has a, a press conference going on in Little Rock with all of the weather that they're having up there. So he's going to jump in and join us. But uh, we're going to um, get with uh, Chief uh, Vera Bumpus and uh, welcome her to the show. And uh, so she can tell us all about her exciting career and what she has been doing. Uh, she's also a past president for an organization that I've been a member of. Uh, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, Noble. She served as the uh, president for Noble back in 2018. So, uh, Chief, how you doing? I'm doing good, Chief Green. Thank you so much for the invitation. Hey, you know what? We've been, we've, we have been wanting to get you on the show, and this was the perfect time to to get you on, especially during Black History Month. And it's it's just an honor to have you. So, uh, we are just glad you could take out the time to, to be with us and talk to our listeners. Yes, well, I'm honored to be on one of the hottest podcasts in the in the nation. <laughs> so well, hey, yeah. thank you again for the invite. With <laughs> uh, definitely two, uh, two great leaders. Um, I consider both of you great leaders, and uh, what you're doing is valuable, uh, not only to the law enforcement community, but to all communities. So uh, I appreciate all the great information that you bring forth each week. Well, thank you. Thank you. And that, that is the whole goal of, of our podcast show, Chief, is to, to, to let uh, our citizens know what their rights are when they deal with law enforcement and the fact that they do have rights and that, you know, oftentimes, unfortunately, some, sometimes those rights are violated and, and uh, we want people to know uh, what they can and cannot do and how to go about uh, making sure their rights are protected. Uh, 
so it, it's been a it's been a very good uh, last. You know, we started this podcast last year. I told you, and uh, it's been uh, amazing, well received with our listeners from all across the country. And we've got a a, a great producer of the show uh, who really uh, helps us get this uh, information out to our listeners. So, um, but um, again, it you know we're we're here to talk about you and 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 kind of tell uh, tell our listeners uh where you're from and how long you've been in law enforcement and just some things that that has been going on with you okay well uh as as you stated earlier, I am the chief of police for Metro Police Department in Houston, Texas Metro Transit Police Department, and uh I have been with the agency now for thirty eight years. Um, oh, wow. I started <laughs> yeah, a long time. Thirty-eight time years. Goes by fast. <laughs> yes. yeah. Time goes by fast, whether you're having fun or not. Uh, so. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but, but I've had fun. Um, I started um, out here, uh, started my law enforcement career with this agency, and uh, went up uh, through the ranks. I was the first African American female hired by um, Metro and um, was the first African-American female in every rank um, all the way up, and, of course, the first African-American uh, to uh, assume the position of chief of police. So um, it, w- it was a long ride. Uh, definitely chief of police was not on my bucket list, but I always tell people sometimes God has a different plan for your life, and mm-hmm. uh, I have been chief since 2014, and uh, it has definitely been – rewarding, uh, mainly because I've had an opportunity to sow into other people, uh, hopefully uh, impart to those who are coming behind me and uh, definitely make a difference in our communities and set an example. So at this point in my career, it's all about uh, what I can do to prepare others and make sure that uh, their number's following. Uh, You know, being number one means nothing unless there are other numbers following you. So it definitely has been um, a great career, I'd like to say. And I still think law enforcement is one of the most noblest professions that you can be a part of. So um, I definitely have enjoyed it. Well, it it definitely is. And it's a career that, you know, oftentimes, you know, over the years you heard people say, well, you know, I'm not in it for the money. (laughs) Because as we know, it's not all about the money, but it's about, uh, giving back to your communities and, and the service, being service-oriented. And as you know, the profession has is always changing. And, uh, and, and you know, hopefully, you know, things are really changing for the better. And uh, uh, because, you know, as we have seen this past year with everything that took place with, with Black Lives Matter, with, you know, the talk about defunding the police and, and and all of those things that are going on, there's there's been some challenging some challenges for law enforcement across the country. Um, and you know, hopefully, you know, uh, some people will, you know, really start listening to to what their communities have to say. Uh, and and because this, as you know, it's a collaborative effort. Everybody is a part of of being a stakeholder and making sure you you've got a a good public safety department. Oh, that's very important, and, and leadership sets the tone for that. Uh, exactly. Right now, based on what we've seen, it's about building bridges. Uh, the days mm-hmm. of us being police 
uh, you know, those days have moved on. And I think now I, I look at us definitely as uh, public servants um, and focus on being public servants and having that balance and that combination of understanding uh, that we we serve and protect. And it, that doesn't always mean taking everybody to jail. So it's exactly. about um, communicating, educating, and, and building those bridges and knowing that the, the community has to be in partnership with us. And uh, I yeah. think that so much this summer uh, really shined a light on uh, some of those cracks in the foundation of this yeah. profession hey. and definitely in the cracks in the foundation of, a, of our bridge with the community. So yeah. I think well, hey, we're Chief. well on our way of preparing it. Yeah. Hey, Chief, we, we're, we're coming up. Don't want to interrupt you, but we're kind of coming okay. up on our, our break. So we're going to take this quick break, and we'll be right back with you. But you're listening okay. to you and the law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. I'm Mary-Kate Carey, columnist for U.S. News and World Report and a frequent contributor to Tell Me More's political chat segment. The person from black history I admire is Condoleezza Rice. Here she is playing the piano along with Yo-Yo Ma on cello, leading to her once being called the most prominent amateur musician in the world. Condoleezza Rice grew up in segregated Birmingham, Alabama in the 1960s. In her recent book, Extraordinary Ordinary Lives, she vividly recalls the violence of the Ku Klux Klan and the death of four girlfriends killed in the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. That crime, she later said, was calculated to suck the hope out of young lives, to bury their aspirations. But that didn't happen to Condi Rice. Instead, she went on to become our first female national security advisor, our first female African-American Secretary of State, and the first female African-American and the youngest person ever named Provost of Stanford University. I can picture her being our first female president someday, too. Her extraordinary, ordinary life is a role model for American women, including ones like me who are not African-American. Welcome back to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network and our sister station on WCOM in Chapel Hill and Carborough. If you have a question for Chief Virgil Green and uh, Chief Humphrey for our guests, uh, make sure you hit us up at 646-929-0130. You can also... Hit us up in the chat room is open. Go to the Union Law Facebook page and ask questions and make comments there. Let your voice be heard. Like Tom in Tennessee. I guess no real uh, connection. Um, But Tom in Tennessee asked a question to your guest, um, Virgil, uh, if first... If um, it's been a challenge uh, to handle COVID-19, especially in a, a big city like Houston, um, and, and, and what's been going on with that. And then also, 
uh, if it has uh, what's the difference between Houston um, Police Department and Houston um, uh, uh, Metro or, or the, the the transportation department that the distinguished chief runs. So that came from Tom, sir. Okay. All right. Well, hey, uh, we want to thank uh, Tom for taking listening to you and the law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, and uh, today we've got uh, a special distinguished guest uh, with the Houston uh, Metro Transit Police Department, Vera Buffers. I know she, she's got she's laughing at me because I said, you know, these distinguished guests. This lady has so so many titles behind her name and in front. She was the 2000 served as the national president for Noble, which is a great organization that we both are members of. And uh, she served in 2018 as the uh, national president. So, Chief, uh, a listener wanted to know what was the difference, be- you know, between the Houston Metro Transit Police Department and uh, uh, and also what uh, precautions you all have been taking. That's a great question, Tom. Thank you so much for asking. First of all, the difference between uh, Metro Transit Police and Houston Police Department is that Metro Transit Police, we focus on everything connected to the transit system. Our system is about 1,300 square miles. Uh, We go through four counties, Uh, whereas Houston Police Department, of course, is responsible for policing everything within the city limits of Houston. And uh, I think their jurisdictional uh, area is probably some 600 or so, 600 miles, a little bit more probably, um, square miles. So uh, that's the difference, and, uh, you know, of course, they work up under the city system, and the chief there is Chief Art Acevedo, a very good friend of mine, uh, who is a very good law enforcement partner also, and uh, we have a very good working relationship, and, of course, he reports to the mayor. Uh, Houston Metro Transit Police, uh, I report to the CEO of Metro Transit Authority as well as to the board of directors. So that's the difference uh, between the two agencies. Um, and as far as COVID, uh, we've probably been doing what every other agency has been doing, making sure that uh, we continually remind our personnel about the CDC guidelines. Uh, we started mask and enforcing mask uh, facial coverings early on uh, in March before it really was mandated. Um, I saw where we were going with it and to make sure that our people were safe. And I not only share information with the personnel, but also information that they can share with their family members. Um, because we know that, you know, of course, family is very important to each and every person. So we continually send out information, uh, not only for their um, health care, but also for their mental health care. We send out information that they can share with their children. Uh, with their other family members. So we've just tried to stay engaged and stay on top of uh, everything going on. We've had some members that have contracted COVID, but we're thankful that they all recovered. Um, And uh, we just continue to exercise those guidelines that have been set forth and now that are mandatory um, by our agency as well as nationally. Yeah, and and being, you know, the the chief of the the Transit Authority uh, Police Department, with everything that deals with transit, with with citizens, you know, using, you know, public uh, uh, transportation, 
that 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 in itself has to be a big challenge, especially with the COVID going on and and making sure that you know your officers have the uh, uh, protective equipment and 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 at the same time still doing the job of of, of policing uh, the uh, transit system. So uh, I, I don't think you know I don't think a lot of people realize it, expect because if I'm Correct me if I'm wrong, Vera, that, you know, the Houston Metro Transit Authority police is one of the oldest transit authority uh, in the state of Texas? Yes, it is. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Dallas so, King so, is on board now, and, of course, um, San Antonio has a smaller transit police agency, and now Austin is looking at um, having a transit police department. So, yes, it is. We've been around uh, since uh, 1982. Mm-hmm. So uh, okay. that's when we uh, became a police department. But uh, it, it is, you know, because we're moving a lot of people um, on a daily basis. So uh, recently, a couple of weeks ago, the mandate came down from TSA for mandatory facial coverings for everyone riding on the transit system. Well, uh, our agency had already put that out locally, so it was not a big change for us. But of course, there's now uh, a lot of a um, lot more literature and um, information that is out posted because of the uh, mandate from uh, TSA that came down. But we've had not have not had any real problems with enforcing uh, facial coverings. We had a couple of incidents, but nothing where. Um, after we educated and informed, uh, we were able to gain compliance. So uh, that that's the, at the end of the day, that's what's important, and that we okay. educate people why. Yeah. So uh, in Houston, has the is there did the mayor do some type of citywide mass mandate, or would uh, would that have impacted uh, what you all do with the transit authority, or? Or how has the city of Houston handled that? Well, the city has handled it basically uh, following the CDC guidelines since it started okay. uh, last month. But the transit agency itself, uh, we came out uh, stating that all riders would uh, wear facial covering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we implemented some things for not for their safety as well as the safety of our employees and others. So um, we implemented that early on for all our transit riders, and then we just came back in the last couple of weeks and reinforced it because of the national guidelines for all transit uh, properties and uh, modes of transportation that facial coverings are now mandatory when utilizing transit. Okay, okay. All right. We want to remind uh, our listeners, if you're just now tuning in, you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and uh, we've got a special guest on the day uh, who's the chief of police with the Houston Metro Transit uh, Authority uh, Police Department. And, um, you know, this is part of our Black History Month uh, as we talk about uh, uh, people, who uh, African-American men and women in law enforcement who have who have either came before us or who are who are uh, doing some uh, extraordinary things in their in their careers and with their agencies, and so. Um, but you know, Vera, you you've been around. You said for for 38 years with the uh, 
uh, Houston Metro Transit Police. Um, have you seen, and I mean, this may be a stupid question because we're both in the same field, but uh, what barriers have African-American women uh, been faced with with career, getting in the door and with career advancements? I think um, some of the barriers, you know, men and women, uh, we put on ourselves um, mm-hmm. because many times look is based on what we see. Um, I was listening to a young lady who is uh, just started with um, an agency, um, Park Rangers, and she was sharing how it used to be where there was a height requirement, and that is why women uh, did not uh, pursue uh, a career with that particular agent, law enforcement agency, and now that has changed. But even though some of those barriers that were there have changed, we still allow sometimes people around us to put those limitations on us. Uh, and you see now where there are more women at the top in leadership, uh, in chief's positions. Uh, we have come so far. I share with a lot of the young female officers in my department now, some of us are, I saw uh early on in my career, they will never have to experience that. And mm-hmm. we all yeah. stand on the shoulders of somebody uh, that paved the way for us. And, that, and when I came along, there weren't women in leadership that I could look to. I saw some uh, out of the state maybe every now and then. You know, of course, I, I remember Jackie Barrett, uh, the, the two women, the chief of Atlanta and uh, the sheriff in Atlanta, those were the first women that I really knew in leadership roles, and I met them through Noble and heard their stories. But now it's, it, you know, it, we've come so far, mm-hmm. and those limitations, you know, it's all about us pursuing. Of course, you, you may at times have unseen <clears throat> barriers that you'll have to push through, but it's just having that uh, tenacity, that persistence to know uh, what you bring to the table. To, to make a decision to push through. So I think we've come a long way in that area and that women have proven themselves that they can be great leaders at every rank in law enforcement. And uh, as continually, I mean, you see every day almost uh, chiefs stepping up, coming to the forefront, being appointed chiefs at all these agencies. Mm-hmm. The one that I, I think of now is in North Carolina, of course. I think they had five black female chiefs um, yeah. that uh, they highlighted yeah. a couple of years yeah. ago. And I thought, you know, that was amazing. You wouldn't have seen that years ago. And, of course, exactly. when I was coming along, I saw them. my mentors were men because I didn't see any women. So I'm very appreciative of the men, you know, that push me in this position that, that continually never, uh, you know, sugarcoated it for me. Uh, always made sure that, you know, I'm, I'm going to give it to you straight. This is mm-hmm. what you can do this, and I'm not going to baby you or help you, but I had men around me that um, I can say I credit for um, making me, um, helping me get to this point where I am today that instilled in that strength, mental inner strength that I, I eventually came up with because you know starting out i was a little wobbly looking like oh can i do this <laughs> yeah. and of course yeah. with your family and friends around you like why would you want to do that why don't you get a regular 85 yeah. job you know so 
Um, you know, we're all a product of those persons who have imparted into us. Yeah. Well, hey, Chief, uh, we're coming we're coming up on our next break, so we're going to take this break and we're going to come back with you. We're going to be talking about Nova, but you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Required listening with Amazon Music. To have music again? The greatest guitarist of all time. Wait, who? Alexa, add this song to a new playlist. Sure, what's the new playlist name? Jack's Intro to Classic Rock. Adding Stepping Stone by Jimi Hendrix to Jack's Intro to Classic Rock playlist. Amazon Music, the simplest way to listen to the music you and soon he will love. New customers start your 30-day free trial at AmazonMusic.com. Renews automatically. Cancel anytime. Blog Talk Radio. Now you can increase your yields by using Conklin's Guardian slow-release nitrogen additive. Guardian holds your nitrogen in the root zone where it's needed over a longer period of time. That, in return, can reduce your nitrogen rates. That saves you money. And whether you want it in a dry or liquid formula, Guardian helps in reducing groundwater contamination, too. So save your money and be a good steward all at the same time by using Conklin's Guardian. Welcome back to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network at WCOM in Chapel Hill and Carborough. 646-929-0130 is the number to get in touch uh, with us. You can do so by hitting that or go online and listen to the show at blogtalkradio.com forward slash LA hyphen bachelor. But the rebroadcast is at uh, our website at the Bachelor News RadioNetwork.com, the Bachelor News Radio Network.com. Back to Chief Virgil Green and Keith Frumphrey and their guest, Chief of Police Vera Bumpers, who leads the Houston Metro Transit Authority Police Department. Well, hey, we want to welcome everyone back to, as LA just shared with you, to you and the law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And we definitely thank LA for. Everything that he does behind the scenes and, and keeping this show uh, running, and uh, so we couldn't do it do it without you, brother. We definitely thank you. But we're we're back with our guest, uh, Chief Vera Bumpers, who uh, we want to get in and talk about when you served uh, as the president with Noble, and you know Noble. A lot of people don't really know about Noble uh, if you're not in the law enforcement industry, and some people who are don't even know about Noble, but it is a great organization that has helped so many people and has, and has uh, done a lot for uh, law enforcement. But let our list, talk to us about when you served as the, the president for Noble and some of the things that, that you um, could do while you were the president for Noble and, and the fact that Noble has a really good partnership with the uh, Department of Justice and how uh, when it comes to policies and, and some things being implemented. So uh, I'll let you talk about that, Vera. Okay. Yes. Oh, Noble, um, Noble stands for National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. And the organization has been around since 1976. It was mm-hmm. started, uh, founders were a group of uh, it, not only chiefs, but it was all persons above the rank of lieutenant, uh, 
because early on you could not be a member unless you were a lieutenant or above. And it's not just for black officers. Uh, we do have uh, officer uh, personnel or officers. Now we allow officers and sergeants. But we do have members who are not just not black, but we are open to anyone who wants oh, yeah. to join. And we also have a supporting member uh, category, and that is for persons who are not in law enforcement but may work in a law enforcement arena or outside but just or just want to support law enforcement. So we do have a supporting member category. And the category for officers and sergeants uh, is associate member, and then lieutenant and above is regular member. And we have uh, over 3,000 members throughout the U.S., and um, we have definitely continued to grow. We saw uh, definitely growth last summer after uh, some of the uh, uprisings because of the um, murder of George Floyd. And so we saw our brand get out more because we were being called to the table to discuss some of the issues that were plaguing law enforcement in the community. And so our current president is uh, Linda Williams, and she has done a Mm -hmm. fabulous job. And prior to Linda was Chief C.J. Davis, and who did an exceptional job. So it was the first time in Noble's history that we had three women back-to-back-to-back come up for for the uh, position of presidency. And uh, the president's uh, position, the role uh, you are voted in for one year, and uh, then you roll off, and we have a, a first and second VP that automatically roll into the president's position. So it, I believe that Noble has been instrumental since the inception of having impact in the law enforcement arena. Uh, we have a program called the Law in Your Community, similar to the name of the podcast, which mm-hmm. we uh, – program is designed to go out and to help the community members understand uh, their rights when dealing with law enforcement and also what can be done if they feel like they have been wronged by law enforcement. And those programs are put on by the local chapters uh, in a city, if your city has a chapter. And even if it does not, if you contact the national office and would like a program presented, then they will definitely arrange for a group to come to speak at whatever event. Uh, We've gone to churches, uh, many of the uh, sorority fraternity organizations and other organizations just to talk about the program. And we make sure that it's generic enough because we know every jurisdiction is different. But there are some basic things like how to interact with law enforcement that we want to make sure that we communicate, especially to young people. So that has been one of our great programs. Uh, One of the things that also was started when I was president is that we started a chief's roundtable, and we Mm -hmm. also did it sheriffs. It was a safe space for chiefs to come together and discuss some of the issues that they were facing internally and externally, because many times, you know, in this leadership role, there's not all everybody's coming to you for answer, answers, and there's not many places where a chief can go and say, you know, this is what's going on with me, and you know, kind of run things by somebody, uh, share some of the issues. And as we found out from having the roundtable, is that many of the chiefs had similar situations going on in their agencies or in their communities. And they were able to share different ideas or, or, or different uh, initiatives that were implemented that were productive. 
so that was one of the um, signature programs or initiatives that I started, that was started under my leadership that I just was really excited about because just to see uh, chiefs be in that safe space to have those discussions. And again, mm-hmm. it has uh, carried on where I believe uh, when Chief Davis was the president, we had, it was done with the sheriff. So it, it's really been a, a great program that has just expanded under each president. And then we each also president. started, um, as I was president, I also started the women's empowerment where uh, women of all ranks, um, it was where we have an empowerment session, and it, this wasn't just a one-time thing at the conference, but it's something that has every um, quarter we've had since the COVID, we've done it virtually, have a meeting with the women that are part of Noble. And just to discuss some of the issues, we uh, started the mentorship program from that, uh, women who aspire to move up in the ranks. So we have uh, that program has expanded. Um, it started under my leadership, but each president has taken it to another level. So I'm very proud of that program, also. Oh, okay, okay. Well, hey, Vera, I gotta uh, ask you a question uh, before uh, I, you know, I, I gotta go through this. I gotta go through this ritual, Vera, where I've gotta introduce uh, my co-host. Um, Here we go. And and here we and, go. You know, it is it is it is Chief Swaggity Swag Humphrey has <laughs> has has finally joined us. Oh, finally joined us. Hey, Miss Vera, Chief Vera, thank you, Chief Vera, thank you for joining us and gracing us with your presence. And you know, I will I will tell you this uh, to the listeners out here: you're talking about the epitome of class. Uh, oh, yeah. She is the epitome of the epitome of class, and she's being a little bit um, how do you say very? Um, she's being very humble. Uh, let's yeah. talk about that chief <laughs> mentoring program. I, I think it's safe to say, and, and, and chief, 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 please correct me if I'm wrong, but, but Noble has probably about a seventy seventy two percent. Rate on placing chiefs after they go through that program, I know it's very yes. high. Yes, and, yes, very and, high. And so, yeah, and, and so for the listeners out there, you know, it's 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 very uh, it's an honor when when you get a phone call and and they ask, would you like to mentor someone? And uh, it, it's an honor that uh, it's a very intensive program because that that the the person who's in that program has to actually go. And shadow a shadow their mentor, so they're with their mentor yes. like three days, and, and I believe they have to do that mm-hmm. a couple of times. And it's amazing, yeah, it's not only as a, yes, ma'am, mm-hmm. and not only is it yeah. amazing for that person going through the program, but it's also amazing uh, for for that mentor because you learn so much about your skills and things like that. So, and, and I will say this also, uh, uh, Chief Bumpers, I will I will tell you this. Um, when when you were the president, um, you um, when you when you the conferences that you hosted, how do you say it, Virgil? Very, they were very eloquent. Oh yeah, uh, very elegant, very very professional. But but you enjoyed being there, and it is such a proud moment to be at a conference yeah. and see that many people who look like you in professional yeah. positions. Who go to who go to class? Who teach the class? 
you learn from them. It's a networking process. So I just wanted to say thank you for for when you were when you were the chief, your leadership still uh, rings out uh, from from that point. So CJ, and then and then now uh, Linda, Len- so you guys are. I, I call it girl power. I call it well woman power. Woman power. <laughs> Well, hey, you know, I, I was going to go back and mention uh, the conferences because, you know, I, you know, me being the, the former uh, chapter president for the Oklahoma Noble chapter, I think we Oklahoma in Tulsa, Oklahoma, we had one of the best conferences by far. Yes, we did. Yeah, we did. We did. Yes. We had mm-hmm. we we had mm-hmm. we had people who came to Oklahoma to Tulsa who. Who brought cowboy boots and they 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 saw a a, a, a rodeo a, a little mini rodeo <laughs> happen. So yeah. so I think it, no matter every conference that we have at Noble, uh, people will bring up that 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 Tulsa that Tulsa Oklahoma conference as one of the best conferences that they've attended. And we've had some really good conferences. Yes, we have. Hey, we had hey, a good Virgil- conference, Little Rock. I don't. Uh, I know Chief Humphreys wasn't there at the time, but yeah, that he, he was, was a great conference in Little Rock. Yeah, yeah, he was. Well, Actually, hey, he and I we attended the conference together, but I let him talk about that. Okay. Hey, well, let me say, let me let me just say this real quick, Chief <laughs> Chief Bumpers. Uh, if you're talking about the one that they had in Tulsa, and and Virgil's talking about they brought people brought their cowboy hats. Let me let me tell yeah. you about how let me tell you about how bougie he is. Uh, <laughs> There was a there was a pasture of cows, and he he asked me, "Hey man, are those man? Look at all those moose, those moose over there." I'm like, "Look, then them cows." So he, hey, he, hey, I'm just telling you, yeah. Hey, hey man, we we you know, on, on that on, on on that right there, uh, Chief Muffins, we got to take a quick break and, and, and pay some okay. bills, but. But we're going to be back with you. But you're listening to you and the law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Recovery Month has become widely recognized and does an outstanding job of celebrating recovery, increasing awareness, and acknowledging the amazing work of providers, advocates, people in recovery, and their families. I believe our work together is helping many Americans better understand, seek out, attain, and sustain recovery. What began as a small and very good idea has grown into a national, mainstream, sustained, and systematic public education and support effort, all focused on the message that people recover. Getting the message of recovery right is critical because people take action based on what they hear and see and, most importantly, what they experience. Experience shapes our knowledge, our values, our attitudes, our beliefs, and our action. Of those who recognized their need for treatment but didn't receive care, the number one reason was no health coverage and could not afford the cost. No one in need should be denied the opportunity for treatment and recovery in our country. Radio Network. 
Network, WCOM, and uh, Chapel Hill and Carborough. Don't forget, if you miss any part of the broadcast, you go to our website uh, at thebachelornewsradionetwork.com, the Bachelor with a T, newsradionetwork.com. Just click on above the UNLaw page, and you can listen to, uh, just choose the program you want to listen to in its entirety and including this this night with um with uh chief uh did get a question um uh, for your distinguished guest uh, again and uh, uh appreciate um the, the chief uh, bumpers being here from the houston uh, transit uh metro transit authority and a question came from Sharita in Durham. She asked if, um, uh, Chief, if you've experienced more racism or sexism in your position and your thoughts on uh, black female law enforcement and the discrepancy as it relates to white female law enforcement. Back to you guys. Hey, it's a great question. Chief, Chief Bumpers will uh, let you uh, answer that uh, listener's uh, question. Well, uh, I think uh, she asked a question about if there was more racism or sexism. Uh, I'd probably have to say the sexism um, because even though uh, you have ascended to a leadership role, uh, this still is a predominantly male profession. Uh, I think nationally, the last uh, information that I saw nationally in 2019, 12, a little over 12 percent of all law enforcement persons, out of all law enforcement persons, is the women, about 12, a little over 12 percent. So that's, you know, nationally looking at, that's a small number. Uh, since I have been the chief of Metro Police, I've been very intentional about uh, recruitment and having a diverse police department. So I'm just proud to say that uh, 30% of my personnel are women. And so uh, that's way past the national average. So I'm happy about that. And and I think every leader has to be intentional about having a diverse uh, department and you have to recruit intentionally. Um, But I think it would be sexism and, and, and you recognize it immediately. Um, and it's not always men; it's women too. Uh, to mm-hmm. be honest, so you oh, yeah. can get it from both. Sides. Yeah. I'm not sure. I missed the last part of her question. I think it was the second part, second question. Yeah, uh, Comfort, did you? Yeah, the, the, the second, second the second part of it. I'm sorry, the second part of it uh, to you, Virgil, and 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 Chief and and Chief Humphrey. Uh, the second part was, I guess she wanted you to compare um, white law enforcement in terms of their advancement as opposed to uh, white female as opposed to black female. To black female. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm, I think uh, for me, I have not seen a difference. I think it just comes down to female, whether you're black or white. I don't think that, um, you know, uh, white females uh, send further or quicker than black females. And it may depend on the area. I've not seen it in this area. Um, So I'm not, I can't speak for all uh, counties or cities. 
Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm not sure, but I know in this area I've not seen it. Um, but and, uh, again, I think all of that goes back to leadership. It, it starts with the leader, who's ever leader. in charge, yeah. really sets that tone. Um, yeah. And uh, it's all in, in the tone that they set about what yeah. they want for that department and what they, if they want the department to reflect the communities they serve. Yeah. Well, you know, t- Texas is a little, little more progressive, uh, and and I'll say, you know, here in Oklahoma, uh, it, it is it is not the, the the case because, give an example, Mira, we've got nor uh, nor here in Ar- nor here in Arkansas, nor, or, nor, in, nor in Arkansas, no. exactly. Uh, here in Oklahoma City, with Oklahoma City Police Department, uh, there is only one black female who was the first black female, and now she's the first black female major, there's never been a black female to ever serve in the capacity higher than a major. Uh, and and that's within the history of, of this department. And so when you talk about, you know, really, you know, placing women in position and even black men in, in that position in by region, um, Texas is a little bit more progressive. Ar- uh, Oklahoma is is behind the times, just like Arkansas is, uh, even some other states from around the country. But you know, one of the things that you know, uh, while I was you know researching, getting ready for this show, uh, you know, back in 1970, there was about three percent of women uh, made up of law enforcement. Now, nationally, it's about 11.6 percent. So, uh, women account for a, a small, a small but a growing percentage of police officers uh, across the country, and you know, and, and let me ask you this, and, and for our listeners, what is the, the, what would you see would be the primary benefit of, in, in number one, recruiting women in law enforcement and women uh, advancing to leadership roles in law enforcement? One of the things I think women just in my opinion, and uh, I think women just police differently. Um, mm-hmm. They have a tendency to use their brain more than the brawn, and uh, we see this. <laughs> and if I think if we, you, you know, if you looked at, um, and I've not researched the use of force data. I mean, but if you think about all the incidents that have occurred that have made national news involving use of force, uh, none of them have involved women. Um, You're right. That I can think of. And and I think that we have we are just used to multitasking. We're used to being uh, being able to balance and approach a situation uh, with a calm. Uh, we we can control many times our emotional ladder, um, and and know how to stay on top of that emotional ladder and not just go you know to a, a place with the person we're dealing with uh, because we've always been pretty much the in charge of the household. So you're dealing with little people and you're dealing with grown people in your household. So you know how to manage both and make sure that we gain some compliance. So mm-hmm. I think that, that we just bring a different uh, attitude uh, to the agency as well as leadership. I see yeah. definitely a benefit having women in leadership. And it's unfortunate that we have cities that are so behind the times when um, I think they're missing out on some great leaders and not uh, advancing those women and especially those that, that aspire to move up. Not all women want to do that. Many say, 
And I've talked to women say, you know, not right now. I want to focus on my children. I'm in this profession. I like it. But once my children get to a point where they're self-sufficient, then I'll look at promoting, but not right now. But then mm-hmm. you have those that are ready now. So, But I think the fact that they are committed to wanting to learn uh, to ensure when their name is called that they're ready, and that's one of the things that I try to push. You know, you may not want to do it now, but just stay in that ready position so you don't have to get ready. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, we want to remind our listeners that you're listening to, if you're just now tuning in, you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and the calling number to the show is 646-929-0130. And if you miss any of the show, uh, you can uh, catch us on uh, the bachelornewsradionetwork.com and just click, click on the link and you can check out our previous shows if you're if you uh, don't catch all of all those uh, our live show but uh, you know we were, we were talking the other day and and uh, you know the uh, 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 lady that we all know who's the former police chief in Dallas Renee you know she came in mm-hmm. to an agency at the first first uh, black uh, female police chief and 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 kind of say some uh, some some things that uh, that she probably didn't expect, but you know mm-hmm. she had she came from an she very intelligent uh, uh, young lady, mm-hmm. and so uh, with that and, and you know we also talked about the the new Waco police chief uh, who's a good friend mm-hmm. of yours uh, going to be taking mm-hmm. over. So when. And I think, you know, this past year, I think we've seen probably more than previous years a lot more uh, African-American women being placed in Mm -hmm. police chief roles. Yes, we have. We have. I think in 2019, 18 or 19, we had 12 uh, women, African-American women, um, that were part of what you would consider major city um, and they were chief, major city chief. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and they uh, were all connected with Noble. They were all connected with Noble. And and, mm-hmm. and Chief Pumphrey mentioned the mentoring program, and I have to really give credit to Dr. Patrick Oliver. Uh, he was the architect oh, yeah. of that program, and he has continued to be the leader of that program. And it has just, you know, it has just been phenomenal. We have so many testimonials of chiefs that have come out of that program. It's a two-year commitment, but what you gain in that two years, I don't think that you could gain from sitting in a classroom anywhere else. So uh, the shadowing is priceless for you to spend that time with an active chief to actually see what goes on day to day because it's nothing like, you know, observing from afar. It's nothing like sitting in the chair. So yeah. it's, it's a phenomenal program, and you know you just can't walk in the program. You know you you you're vetted. Um, they ask you to complete. Um, Dr. Oliver has you complete a request, a form. Uh, you submit a paper. So it's not an easy just walk in and walk out. You know you're going to work for it, and you will come out the better after going through the program. Yeah, because uh, Chief Humphrey had. Uh, when he, when you were the chief in Norman, you had somebody uh, come through uh, Norman PD and, and shadow with you, who who moved yeah, up I, to the rank also, of being uh, an assistant chief at what out in Seattle. Yeah, uh, uh, Perry Tarrant. And, yeah, Perry. And then, uh, just since I yeah since I've been here, I've had someone come. But but but, but Vera, I want to say something, and I would ask you, let's brag a little bit about this. Uh, 
tell because our our producers from North Carolina. That's my boy. That's my boy. Yeah. And could you kind LA. of brag about the 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 sisters that that made up North Carolina? There was there was quite oh, a few yeah. That, that yeah. If you could just kind of talk about the they had a run yeah, on, on on Sharp Sisters a few years ago. Oh yes, I mentioned that earlier. Um, they okay. uh, definitely they did a um, they were featured on Megan Kelly, uh, five black female chiefs in North Carolina which is, you know, that's unheard of to have that many female chiefs, period. But um, they spotlighted all five of them, and uh, I happen to know them and all phenomenal women, um, leaders. I, they're all still in their positions, except I believe uh, Chief Cassandra Dick Brown did announce that she's retiring. Um, but I think she's retiring um, in March or April, I believe, of Raleigh. She's the chief in Raleigh, North Carolina. But the other four are still in their positions uh, in North Carolina, and they were able to spotlight just what a female chief brings to the table on a national level. And so we were very proud of that, knowing all five of those women are noble members, knowing that they have made uh, an impact inside of the noble organization, uh, definitely by sharing um, on being on panels, being instructors, and even mentoring many women and men that are part of Noble. So we were very proud to see them highlighted, and which definitely opened the door for other chiefs across the country who were in small and large agencies to be uh, looked upon and seen just what they can bring to the table. Uh, we've made some great strides, and it's just been just phenomenal to see, uh, knowing where we came from. So uh, they, as a matter of fact, um, a couple of them, uh, I definitely always will give them a call when I know a female is trying to move up and are about to go through an assessment process for chief. And uh, they have always been very gracious to share uh, what they know and uh, tips on how they went through their process. So uh, it's just good when you have people who are willing to share, and it's not all about them, but they're open to help others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, and, you know, we're, we're coming up on the last few minutes of the show, but, you know, me and Keith, we talked about getting, um, you know, the executive director with Noble uh, on the podcast show, Dwayne Crawford, who, you know, mm-hmm. has been doing an outstanding job, uh, you know, leading Noble uh, so you know if if uh, if 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 Dwayne is listening, you know you're gonna get an invitation to come on the uh, the hottest uh, law enforcement podcast show uh, and and talk to us about Noble. So, but you know, Vera, it's been uh, you know it's been great having you on. And and Keith, I gotta say this to our listeners, you know, we all are faced with this this weather challenges, and I talked to. I talked to Vera earlier, and they were dealing with some power outages in Houston, and she said, I'm not going to miss this show. This is the hottest <laughs> show around. I'm, I want to be on with Chief Swag. So I got to thank her for taking the time to come out uh, under the, the the situation that she's dealing with in Houston. Yes, I was just – it was my honor. I definitely did not want to miss it, and – Chief Swag. I, I really need him to explain to me what the ATM stands for. I know a couple of things it stands for, but I'm sure he has his own. 
So, but, uh, you know, one, two of uh, definitely both of you are my favorites, and I, I appreciate you so much for the investment that you're making in this profession and in, in our communities because, again, as I said earlier, this is something that is definitely needed. Uh, it's necessary at this time, and, you know, God already knew we would be, what we would be faced with, so I just thank you for giving of yourselves and uh, sharing and bringing others on. And I really enjoyed the conversation about Bass Reeves uh, last week. Oh, thank you. Uh, that's thank you. phenomenal. That was just phenomenal. So um, yeah. thank you all for what you do. Yeah, thank you. Thank well, you. Thank you so much. And, and hey, hey, Vera, just remember, he said mooses. He said there's a whole crowd that of mooses. Man, ain't, man, ain't that. Nothing about, man, I ain't oh, saying nothing said. about no mooses, man. You know what? Let me, <laughs> hey, have you ever rode a horse? Hey Keith, have you ever yeah, rode a You have. I have. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Man, we're gonna, go we're gonna, hey, they go and tell the listeners, man. Go on and wrap this up, man. <laughs> tell the listeners, man. Hey, hey, man. Come on, hey. People ain't got time to hear that, man. Tell <laughs> hey, man. Vera, Vera, we want to thank you. We're gonna get. We're gonna get you back on the show again. But but hey, we want to tell everybody that you know if you missed any parts of this show. Definitely uh, go to uh, thebachelornewsradionetwork.com and click on the link to listen to any previous shows as well as this show uh, that will be put up on the, uh, on, the, on the website. But, again, everybody, thanks for joining us, and uh, we will see you next week with another special guest on You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.